This is episode 560 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the movie Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner's character hears a voice that says, If you build it, they will come. While this quote has been iconic, part of the Hollywood folklore, the truth is, if we let God build his church the way he intended, he will come. And when he comes, he brings with him the power to transform lives, just like we see in the book of Acts. Can you imagine what it would be like for today's church to look like the early church? We would experience prayer meetings with the power that would shake the very room we were in. We would have boldness in the face of governmental persecution, no matter how harsh it was. There would be miracles and great signs from God authenticating our faith in his message. And if we suffered for him, we would rejoice that he considered us worthy to suffer shame like his son. Just imagine what Christian life would look like if we lived like they did in the early church. But sadly, that seems just like a dream, and many have lost hope of ever experiencing the power and wonder of God we see displayed in the pages of the book of Acts. Did you ever wonder why? Join us today as we look at three aspects of the Christian life the early church embraced wholeheartedly and we have failed to. And in doing so, let's learn how to leave Laodicea behind. not really know how to share this, how to begin uh, um, sharing with you what the Lord's been doing in my own life as I've gone through these passages. I've been reading the Old Testament. I've been reading the New Testament. I've been watching some classic movies, and I find a connection between all of them. Do you remember the movie Field of Dreams? Remember the baseball movie? Uh, Kevin Costner, all that kind of stuff. There was a byline in that movie that says, if you build it, they will come. You remember that one? If he builds in the middle of a cornfield, some baseball field, then these guys from the dead will come and play ball or something of that nature. And, and I, I, I realized that that's pretty much what they teach you in seminary. When you go to seminary and they talk about church growth, that's pretty much what they say. If you build it, they will come. Uh, I remember the hero of the modern church growth movement, Rick Warren, back when I was first starting out, he has now retired basically had this mantra that all of us as young preachers, young church planters wanted to follow, and it was the way Rick Warren did it. And so what Rick Warren did is when he went to California, he would go around in the neighboring communities, he would knock on the doors of unbelievers and maybe people who went to other churches, and he would simply ask them this, if, if we built a church like you would like it to be, would you come? Uh, probably. Okay, well, then what do you want in a church? Well, and here they got a long list of what the people wanted. Again, these are not saved people, but some of them were. Most of them were lost people or people that were estranged from church. And well, we want um, really good music. We want music that inspires us. We want music a lot like the music we listen to on the radio. Check. We want messages that are not real long. We don't want them real deep. We don't want them, you know, to last an hour. We want something short and, you know, something snappy, something that makes me feel good about me. So when I leave, I don't feel condemned. I feel enlightened, like how God, how much God loves me. Check. We've got that. We don't want words that uh, we don't understand what they mean. We don't want to talk about propitiation or atonement. We don't want to talk about repentance. We don't ever want to talk about hell. Instead, we want to talk about the good things in life, the, the stuff that, that makes me want to keep coming back. 
check. We want activities for our kids, and we want a safe place for our kids, and we want the, you know, the youth department and the children's department to be first class and check. And so what Rick Warren did and has taught to hundreds of thousands of other pastors is that's the way you build a church, is you give the people exactly what they want. And if you build it like they want, they will come. Uh, Bill Hybels in uh, Chicago started the idea of using little drama or video vignettes to try to communicate the message. And if you look at a Bill Hybels message, and don't get me wrong, these guys are excellent communicators. Excellent. I mean, incredible communicators. There'll always be some little drama going on, or the stage will be set with you know, living room furniture, or there'll be something that just adds another sense to it. And And boy, we tried all that because that was the hottest thing that was going on out there. And then the seeker movement hit. In other words, we need to have church for not for people who aren't really saved, but for people who are kind of considering the uh, claims of Christ. And so we want to dumb everything down so that a lost person would feel comfortable in our church, because if they come long enough and seek the truth, eventually they'll find the truth. So church no longer became a place where the redeemed worshiped. It became a place where the lost would come and kind of get a taste of Christianity. And if they liked it, then they would come more. And if they didn't, they wouldn't. And then all of a sudden, we had this lukewarm fervor that just kind of took over the, the, uh, our nation at that time, the church nation, during my generation as being a pastor over the last 30 years. You know, Bill Hybels, five years ago, basically came out and said, um, he repented and said what he did was wrong, that all it did was basically inoculate his church, and these are all mega churches, his church to the true truth of the gospel because everybody was accustomed to, my generation speaking, flannel graph Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? And so this was the movement that... Uh, that uh, has taken place over the last generation. Churches have become very large. And then the way churches grow is they then spin off like the Andy Stanley model where they then have all these uh, affiliate congregations who listen to Andy Stanley or watch him on the video and they have their own little worship band and Elevation is now doing that and many of the other churches are doing that. And, and it's like, okay, we're doing everything we can marketing-wise to build a business, to build a, a group of people, to you know, have people come through the doors for the show, and then we're going to offer the plate, which is going to be the price of their ticket, and we're going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the product that comes out is an anemic Christianity where the spiritual temperature of our nation keeps getting colder. Have you noticed? Colder and colder. More people come to church. And don't get me wrong. Um, you know, some of these, some of the shows, some of the churches out there have incredible, and this is coming from a concert promoter for New Life 91.9, incredible stuff that they do. Um, light shows and the bands are just first class and the message is being preached is preached by like, like Stephen Furtick. You know, it's just really incredible, energizing communicator, except every message is about you. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Every message, whatever it is, it's is David and Goliath. It's not about David and Goliath and the sovereignty of God and redemption and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's about how 
Goliath is your problems and you're David. And, you know, everything is always about us. It kind of feeds this narcissistic view that we have. And, and the temperature overall becomes less and less and less more lukewarm. The world gets darker and darker. And yet Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And yet it seems like the church is cowering in the corner because the darkness is encroaching and we don't want to even engage it because we don't believe it anymore, because we've never seen the power of God manifest in our lives, because revival is something we read about but never really see happen. I mean, it's a, it's a troubling dilemma that we're in right now. It has bothered me for years. And I, I don't know how to fix it. I mean, I, I, I don't know what to do. Um, I have attempted to the best of my ability to preach as deep. I mean, you know, if I'm preaching, if, uh, if, you know, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. I've preached that over the last 30 years probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 times. And every time I, I preach it, I find something new. So it's not like the first time I preached it where I'm kind of skimming the surface and I'm learning these things, but every time it goes deeper and deeper and I, I try to communicate that. And, you know, is, is, there, is there something else we're missing? Is it, I mean, how do we build the church rather than confusing it with an institution or a structure? How do we construct our worship services in such a way that we truly worship and that God actually shows up? not theologically, but spiritually here in a tangible way where we can experience him and feel him, which happens really at the beginning of every great revival, of every great awakening. There's a movement of God, usually in a, a small congregation, that just spills over because people are looking for something real, are they not? So, Lord, um, what are we doing? What am I doing? What? And I've, I've, over the last six months, um, you, you don't know any of this. Um, over the last six months, I've questioned everything. Um, I've questioned the way I was raised. I questioned the way we do church. I've, I've, I've tried to clear the slate of what I think things ought to be or these sincerely held convictions that we've all grown up with and how we just do things and have always done things and done that way for centuries. And I've tried to go back and see exactly what the scripture says about those. And I've been shocked at the difference between what the Bible says and what I have just come to accept as a pastor almost all my pastoring life. And I've shared just a little bit of those things over the last couple of weeks, but um, I've come to the conclusion that um, if we build it, that doesn't mean he's going to come. If he builds it, he will come. And there's a huge difference there, a huge difference. I started uh, going back and looking at the, the incredible confining requirements God put on his children in the Old Testament in order for him to show up. I mean, do you realize how exact it was? Everything. This is how the priests are supposed to look. This is how they're supposed to dress. This is the garments that they're supposed to have. This is all the ceremonial washing they do. This is the tabernacle that I'm going to uh, visit you in. Here's exactly how I want it done. It's this long and this wide, and it's got, you know, it's made of this material, and there's so many gold loops, and here's the Ark of the Covenant. It can only be carried by so many people, these particular people. And if you mess up, I will be angry and not show up. You know, we 
have it all done God's way. And then, of course, we have uh, two sons of Aaron decided that they're going to do it their way. So they go in and they offer strange fire, it talks about, at the altar. And remember what happened? My God checked them out. Bam, you're gone. Both of them dead. And turned around to Aaron and told Aaron, don't you dare grieve for your children because of what they've done. Wow. Oh, okay. They're carrying the ark from captivity back to Jerusalem. You know this story. And it's on an ox cart, which it should not be. God said it's supposed to be carried by the Levites and on a pole through the loops. But no, they're doing it what seems expedient. I mean, let's get it there quickly and let's go on the ox cart. It didn't seem like a big deal at the time. And as they're going down the road, the ox begins to stumble and the Ark of the Covenant begins to slide off into the mud. And one of the guys there looks up, sees this travesty happening, puts his hand up to steady it so it wouldn't fall in the mud and God struck him dead. Do you remember? David was shocked. I I can't believe this is even happening. I don't even understand. Why did you do that, God? They left the ark where it was for six months, and David was afraid to come and get it. I mean, why would God do that? I mean, can't we just worship him our way? Can't we just do the things that we want to do? Can't we make church comfortable for us rather than kind of figure out a way that really glorifies God in a way that he's so pleased that he actually wants to show up and inhabit our praise. I am not cynical enough, although, um, as Chuck Missler once said, cynicism was his spiritual gift. I totally understand that. But I'm not cynical enough to believe it can't happen. I know it can. And I'm I'm running for it as fast as I can. And one of the ways that I'm trying to do that is looking and seeing exactly what the Scripture says about how we're to worship Him, exactly what the Scripture says about what our attitudes are supposed to be like, exactly what church is supposed to be like when He does show up. Then I compare it to how we do church when He doesn't show up. And then I'm going, you know, maybe maybe it's us. Maybe it's the fact that if we let him build it, he will show up and literally transform every one of our lives. You know what happens to you when God speaks to you. You know, hopefully it happens a lot, but if it's only happened once in your life, you know what an exhilarating experience that is. You know that even now, when you look back at your spiritual life at the high points, it was back then when God spoke to me in such a clear way and it just changed my life and he answered my prayer and oh, my faith just soared. And even when you go back and think about that, it just encourages you today. Imagine, imagine if something like that happened every day or you came to church with other believers who were just sold out to him in such a way they've surrendered their life, and God is speaking to them on an ongoing basis through his word or during prayer or however it was, and they come together and they worship him, and God shows up in the midst of their corporate worship together in a powerful way, like we see in Scripture, like we've heard about in other revivals. I mean, this would be the place you would want to be and never go home. This would be the place we would invite all our friends to come to. This would be the place, no, no, Ken, you need to come. I'm telling God, it's incredible what he does there. You come. He's here. But because, and I'm speaking with a broad brush here, because that probably hasn't happened to most of us, then it's just church. It's just a religious service. It's just, you know, what we do, and then somehow paying our time tithe to God And then we go on our merry way, 
and he has a negligible impact in our life long term. Does that make sense? I don't want to be that way anymore. I mean, I really don't. And so um, I, in my own life, am on a journey to experience God more than I ever have before. And I've had some great times with him, but um, nothing like I know he wants to have. And I am inviting you to come on that journey with me. I hope you will. It's a, it'll make you uncomfortable because we're going to see some things in Scripture that just lie in our face, things we flat don't want to do. That I, don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't want to do that. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. And if we keep doing what we're doing with the same attitude that we've always had, why would we at all possibly expect to have a different result than what we've already got? Would you agree? So over the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to share some small segments of truth with you in Scripture that um, will hopefully not coerce you into being different, but will just ignite just the small flame of faith inside of you that it can be different, that it is possible. And if it is possible, and it can be done, and it is attainable, then the bulk of the work is done. Because unless we believe first, nothing's going to happen. So that's the direction that we're going to be going for the next couple of weeks. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts and a couple other passages. And um, I'm really excited about sharing this with you. We've been talking about church the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at scripture. I've just been introducing the topic about what church is biblically. We looked a couple of weeks ago how church is different back then than it is now. Church today is really relegated more as a teaching kind of symposium, like a forum, where we come in and we sit just like this. And it's my job to talk, and it's Levi's job to sing, and it's your job to listen and take notes, and then we stand up and we leave and we have learned something. We've learned something about the Bible, and we've, maybe we really enjoyed the music. Maybe, maybe the music even moved us to the point of tears. Maybe during the music that, that we actually moved beyond ourselves and actually spent some time really worshiping and thinking about him. And Okay, but the music's over now, and now we have the message, and we listen to the message, and then we fellowship for a little bit, and then we go home. And then we had the rest of our lives, the major part of our lives, the important parts of our lives that we basically function with our own wits and with, with the wisdom of this world rather than letting God intervene in everything. Then we talked about the early church, and we saw some really crazy things that they did. For example, we had this idea of this priesthood of a believer that we understand doctrinally, but we have a hard time actually practicing that, which simply means that I'm not the only one who hears from God. I'm not the only one that has a message here. Levi's not the only one that has a song. The fact is that you have direct access to God just as much as Billy Graham had direct access to God. The Apostle Paul had direct access to God, and he wants to talk to you. He wants you to experience him. He wants us to come into the fullness of Christ. And as I shared with you two weeks ago, picking on Carol, unless we know Carol's experience with God, then as a body, we can't know the fullness of God because we have no idea how God is working with her. 
as part of the body of Christ. But we've all been conditioned that she doesn't say anything. She's not supposed to say anything. Nobody says anything. When we ask for prayer requests, we give a few of those, unless the person before us prays for cancer, and then our prayer requests don't seem all that important. Or when we give testimonies, they're usually this person got you know healed of this or something of that nature and until we until we all understand how all the body operates and what god's doing in all of us there's no way any of us can understand the fullness of christ you can understand my relationship with christ because i'm sharing it with you you can understand levi's relationship with christ because he's up here singing about it and worshiping about it you can get together with somebody and have a meal with them and they can tell you what jesus is doing in their life but there's so much of the body of Christ that we've been conditioned that, no, I'm not supposed to say anything. I feel uncomfortable saying anything. I don't want to say anything, so I won't. Or maybe it's the fact that we've been conditioned that unless God, you know, has this mighty mighty rushing wind in our house and we all start speaking in tongues, that it's not nothing worth worthy to share it. And all that's a mindset that we've all grown up in. I mean, if we're having a worship service and in the middle of my message, Violet stands up and says, no, no, wait, wait, wait. I, let, I, I need to tell you something that God has done in my life. Because we know Violet, we would go, okay. But if we didn't know Violet, we'd go, how rude to, to, to interrupt what we're doing here. You know what I mean? We also talked about this early church They had so much trust, not necessarily in each other, but so much trust in God that they trusted God with all their possessions. They put him in a common pool, and then God met everybody's needs through that, the selfish people and the giving people, the ones that were sold out to him and the ones were just the hanger-ons. And the idea was the fact that the relationship of oneness and unity and of a single mind in the mind of Christ that was in the Trinity itself has now been transferred to the church inhabitants of the Holy Spirit itself. And we just basically introduced that idea two weeks ago because the passages that we look at in Acts are frightening. They're frightening for people like us because it demands this element of trust, not in each other, but in God that uh, I've never actually seen before. So I shared with you two weeks ago that what we're going to do today is we're going to, we're not even going to finish it. We're just going to look at what God can do through a group of people that don't have our structures. They don't have our history. They don't have our tradition. They don't have our, no, we've always done it this way and it can't change. They don't have any of that. They're just moving in the fullness of the Spirit and God's leading them wherever He wants to. And the result of that is phenomenal. It's mind-boggling compared to what we see today. And maybe, just maybe, maybe there's a connection between those two. And all I want to do is introduce this. You know, we're not making any major changes. We're not doing anything like that. This is a journey that I'm on, and I'm asking you to join with me, that I'm hoping by the end of this year that we will experience God in ways that we never have before. And by the way, the most powerful tool in God's hand is you when you're on fire for him. You when God has done something incredible in your life. You when it's just this 
amazing thing that takes place. You know, I, I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills, and things got really tough out there. They were about to foreclose on my house, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, does, what's going to happen? And you know what? Just out of nowhere, this lottery ticket just blew in front of me, and I picked it up, and I, I, I don't even know where it came from, and I cashed it in, and it was $200,000. You know, tell me, if that happened to you, how many times would you tell that story? To everybody you know. Everybody you know. Hey, you know what? I've, I, I've, got, I've got diabetes, which is out of control, and you know, I've, I've gained an extra 100 pounds, and you know, I don't really know what to do, and my, my health is falling, and I just had a heart attack and a stroke, and, and you know, all of a sudden I just, I just decided I'm going to follow this all-natural way of eating, whatever it is, or take this homeopathic thing. And, and you know what happened? It's really amazing. I've lost like 100 pounds, and my blood pressure is down to normal. I don't have diabetes anymore. I was on 14 medicines, and now I'm not. Do you know you would tell every person you knew that story? Because it made a profound impact in your life. Imagine what it would be like if God moved in our midst. If God showed up, that something incredible happened, and I mean, we would we would tell everybody about that in no time at all. We'd we'd be having seven services here if God was here. Nobody would want to leave. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. Why? Well, because God's never really shown up like that before, and uh, I don't really think He will. Because if I, if I had a laundry list of things I needed to do to build it his way in such a way that, that he would show up, I'm not sure I'm willing to do that because I don't know if him showing up is that important to me anymore because I'm okay just like I am. And that's a terrible place to be. I've been that way for a long time. Let me, um, let me just go through these really quickly. This is Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4. I've already shared these passages with you. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up and he starts sharing a sermon after the Holy Spirit inhabited them. They've waited for 10 days. It's um, 50 days, or it's, a, it's time of Pentecost. It's 50 days after the, the uh, resurrection of Christ. Uh, they've been in the upper room for 10 days now. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls. You know the story in Acts chapter 2. There's the sound of a mighty rushing wind and these cloven tongues of fire, and all of, the, all of them were filled just like you are right now. They have nothing then that you don't have now. You do realize that, don't you? The only thing that you have that they don't have is a wealth of theological doctrinal knowledge that they didn't. They didn't understand about election. They didn't understand about the sinless atonement of Christ. They didn't understand about the end times. Paul hadn't written his letters at that time. They didn't understand theology, didn't understand doctrine. All they understood is, I've been with Jesus. He promised this would happen. I'm now filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm giving in to the Holy Spirit. Look what he's doing. You and I have so much more than they had back then, but for some reason they utilized it or the Holy Spirit was more free in them than he is with us, which means God is a respecter of persons and God does choose favors, favorites, or maybe there's something in us that is hampering him from flowing the way he wants to. And if that's the case, it would be the greatest thing we've ever done as believers, then to find out what is hindering the free flow of the Holy Spirit in our life and get rid of it. That happens on an individual basis. And once it happens on an individual basis, it can happen on a corporate basis. 
Here's what happens. Peter's preaching his message. This is a short message. I've shared this with you before, 297 words, if you take the scriptures out. And it says, and with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, guys, quit being like the world. Be saved from this perverse generation. What an offensive thing. The, 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 the media is perverse. The government is perverse. The educational system is perverse. Everything is perverse. You need to get out of Egypt and go back into Goshen. You need to live like you're supposed to live. With many words, he testified, talking about what he had done, maybe what happened to him, what he's seen in other people's life, and encouraged and exhorted them and begged them, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, uh, Romans chapter 12, to be saved from this perverse generation. And then God moved. God moved in a powerful way. And it says, then those who, and this is an amazing phrase, gladly received his word. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I, I want out. I want to be changed. I want to be different. I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be saved from this perverse generation. I want to be light in darkness. I want this, this world not to be my home anymore. I want my friends and neighbors and families to persecute me and kill me just like they did Jesus 50 days earlier. Really? But they gladly received that message and turned around and were baptized which is a renunciation of all their Jewish heritage. They were baptized publicly, which means they were like a proselyte, like a Gentile. They were now looked down upon by every person they had ever known. And 3,000 people came to faith in Christ from different countries, from different providences, from different dialects, from... Uh, different political persuasions. Some may have been Pharisees, some may have been Sadducees, maybe even some zealots. They, uh, the, some of them were rich, some of them were poor, some of them were blue-collar, some of them were no-collar. I mean, it was, a, it was a mismatch of people came together. And Peter's message was bold. And this is a man who ran because some servant lady, some cleaning lady said, hey, I recognize you uh, by, by your dialect. You were with some of those Jesus people. And he was so intimidated by a cleaning lady that he cursed, called down curses upon himself. I don't know him and ran. Do you remember? And now he's preaching an offensive message. You all you people out there, if there's 10,000 people listening to my voice, 7,000 of you are still perverse. You're still in this perverse generation. But 3,000 of you have decided to gladly be different than your neighbor, different than your friends, different than your family members, to be saved, delivered from this perverse generation. So what did they do? We talked about this two weeks ago, the logistics the early church devoted themselves to four things, the apostle doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Got that. But the key word here is not what they did. It was the fact that they continued steadfastly. They held on to the truth of the gospel and the training that they had from these disciples, this 120 people, more than anything. 
It was more important than their jobs. It's more important than making money. It was more important than anything because their life now had been changed. This world was no longer their home. Heaven was their home. The kingdom is their home, and they live now for the kingdom. And when that happens, when a group of people are that committed, we have this then word. As I've shared with you from day one, then is a time word. It's like the beginning of an if-then proposition. If you do this, then this will happen. Or this has happened, and then something else happens. It's like something predicates something else. Then fear came upon every soul. Fear of God. The the dread of who he is and the fear of offending him, fear of sinning against him, fear of the, like Jesus says, don't fear him who can kill the body only, but you want to know who you should fear? Fear him who not only can kill the body, but throw the soul in hell. Do you remember? And also this profound awe of him. Oh my gosh. You know, I was a Jew and I believe that at the temple and all the corruption going on there, at the temple, God would show up and just talk to the priest. So I'd have to bring my lambs and have to pay my tithes and have to go through the motion. And it was just something I hated doing, but I did anyway to somehow make me doctrinally pure before God. And now all of a sudden, everything has changed. Now I realize that I have an intimate relationship with God. I can speak to him. He can speak to me. And later on, we find in Stephen's sermon, God does not live in buildings made by stone by the hands of men. No, he lives in us. And this transformation took place, this reality that God Almighty, the great I am, has a personal relationship with them. And this fear came upon them, and then God did incredible miracles and signs and wonders, authenticating that through the apostles. So I'm I'm asking a question. The then part, the fear of God. Does the fear of God come because what they were devoted to? Would we ever have a fear of God if we were not steadfastly devoted to anything other than our jobs, our family, our own life, or making money, or uh, having vacations, doing the things that we want? I mean, can any of us in here say that we are steadfastly devoted to God, His Word, to fellowship, to prayer, to the sacraments? Probably not. I mean, that's the whole point of the 1 to 10 metric. So we can figure out where we are, not compared to some other standard, but where we are compared to where we have once been in the past. If it's true, maybe there's a reward for those people who are committed to him. Let me tell you what I have learned over the years. What I have learned over the years is the fact that um, God, and I won't say never, but God seldom, if ever, honors the casual, the haphazard, the, okay, if I feel like it, never. What God honors is the same thing our society honors. What God honors is the committed, the people that are sold out, the ones that have burned their ships in the harbor that are not turning back. We admire Olympic athletes who do that. We admire basketball and football players who during the summer when everybody else is going to Carowinds, they're dribbling and shooting foul shots eight hours a day because that's what they want. And then when they achieve the heights of their chosen path in life, we honor that. Yes, I can see how you would do that. You put in all the time and the effort. Therefore, you're honored by our society. God does exactly the same thing spiritually. 
seems to honor those people who are devoted to him. David's, or Daniel's a young kid. He's carried off into captivity. All the other people are doing their things. Daniel says, no, I'm not gonna, I don't want to eat this kind of stuff. I don't want to defile myself with that. And so therefore, let me propose to you, conquering king, a deal. Why don't you let me fast for a while and, and see how it turns out? And I mean, who did God honor? The one that as a boy was serving him. So what happens to this group of people? And here's the scary part, and we're not, I'm not advocating this, so don't, don't be afraid. I'm just reading what happens in Scripture. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this. They sold their possessions and goods. Possessions and goods. Two different phrases. Possessions mean your personal possessions. Goods mean if you're actually running a retail business, your inventory. Wow, so what happened here? They got out of the business. They quit what they were doing, and they were sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does this happen to everybody? I'm, no, I'm just letting you know what happens here. They sold their possessions in good and divided among all as anyone had, and there's the phrase, need. It's always a need and not a want. A need, I need a car. Okay, well, I've got a um, uh, 1983 Buick. It's an A-cylinder, only runs on four, but it'll get you where you want to go. No, 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 I can't drive a car like that. It's not the car I want. I want this car. That's a want, not a need. True? The requirements was based on need. But the early church didn't care about that because they were committed to something more than satisfying their earthly wants. They wanted to build the kingdom because this transformation took place that I have never, I've read stories about it, but I've never known anybody, including myself, that has been saved to the point that they really surrendered everything to him. Everything to him. No, no, no. I went to school to be a lawyer, and I've still got the death to be a lawyer. So now that I'm saved, I'm going to be a Christian lawyer. I know, but God doesn't want you to be a Christian lawyer. God wants you to be something else. I don't want to be something else. I want to be a Christian lawyer. So I'm just going to have him season my life rather than totally transform it. I, I notice even with my own kids, we homeschool our kids, we raise them, and we really try hard to help them get a job, train to get a job so they can make good money. I mean, that's an important thing for a father to do, good money. I've very seldom ever met a father whose number one goal for his children was to be able to hear the word of God and hear the, uh, the word of the Lord and do whatever God wants them to do. No, 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 you can't live like that because you may end up being a stock clerk at uh, Harris Teeter. No, no, you, you, need, you need to own that business. You need to be a manager, a district manager, regional manager, because that's, that's, that's our life. That's what we do. That's what men are supposed to encourage their kids to do. It's what I did with my kids. I want to just go through this really quickly since we're probably not going to get to chapter four today. I want to go through this really quickly, and I want to show you... Um, something in scripture that is kind of hard to get your mind around because I was looking for an example of the opposite. In our life, what we do is we ask, you know, if whatever I am when I come to Christ, I expect Christ to make me a better what I am. If I'm a, a middle management of a large corporation, then he's going to make me a godly middle management in a large corporation. Maybe in a few strange situations, he'll call me out of that to be a pastor. But it doesn't seem like he ever calls me out of that to do something else. 
if I'm uh, a doctor, if I'm a, an accountant, a CPA, then he's going to make me a Christian CPA. And so therefore, now what I want to do is I want to work for you know, a Christian ministry, but doing the same things that I, I've trained to do. Because after all, God doesn't want to waste my training. And I don't want to waste my training. I mean, this is what I wanted to do. And, and you know, I'm sure God's will for me is what my will is for me. And maybe it is. But it's almost like we're never open to the fact that maybe it's not. So a couple examples here. Matter of fact, I'm having a hard time finding an opposite example of what happens when Jesus calls certain people to himself. Here are the disciples. It says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers. There's Simon and called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea, and they were fishermen. They weren't working for a porn company. They weren't selling beer. They weren't you know, involved in some Hollywood sinful kind of thing so that God would call them out of that business into something more God-honoring. They were fishermen. I mean, fishermen. I mean, there's nothing good or evil about being a fisherman. They just had a job, a profession. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll no longer let you be fishermen of fish, but I'm going to somehow transform you to be fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Well, can't you do both? Can't I be a Christian fisherman? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Can't I, can't I just fish and make a living fishing? I'll come to church on Sunday. I'll, I'll share Jesus with other fishermen. I'll be the very best I can be. I can build my house and I get my retirement and I'll serve in my church. Can't I do that? Well, sure, I guess. That's what we all do. But in Scripture, there's always a different picture. Goes a little further. Meets James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. You know the account here. And he called them and immediately left their boat and their father, and followed him, never to go back fishing. Matter of fact, the only time they ever did go back fishing is during that time of discouragement when Jesus had been raised from the dead and they couldn't find him and they're wandering around for 40 days. Peter says, I'm going back fishing. They catch this huge, well, 153 fish. They bring it on shore. Jesus has them cooked, cooking and chastises Peter for what he did. Do you remember? Peter, son of Simon, do you love me more than this? what you've gone back to. Yes, Lord, you know that I do. You remember that? Okay. Matthew, I understand Matthew. Matthew's an evil tax collector. Although he could have been a godly tax collector, he could have actually shown what it means to follow God and be a tax collector and only collect the things he should. But instead, when he said, follow me, Matthew left all, rose up, and followed him. Well, is it... um? Is it, oh, no, this is just the disciples. This is just the 12. This doesn't apply to anybody else. It's just the 12. Okay. Until you get to Luke chapter 14. And he gives this teaching on discipleship, and he sums it all up by saying this. So likewise, whoever of you, and he's not just talking to the 12, does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Does that mean as an accountant that when I got saved, if God didn't call me into the ministry, that I still couldn't be a Christian accountant? No, I still can. But it means I have to be willing to forsake everything for him. But those are certain things that the church today never does because I've got student loans and I've, this is the choice that I've made in my life. And, and I've wanted to be a, an accountant since I was a little kid counting pennies in a lemonade stand. So God, I'll choose, you bless it, and hopefully we'll have a good, lukewarm life. I'm talking with a broad brush here, but can you see? So um, 
man comes to Jesus and says, I would like to continue my old life. Um, I'm a rich man, and so I've got a lot of stuff, and so I want to come and follow you. I care about you. I, 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 I believe in you. And Jesus says, okay, then you need to do, and this is not a disciple, you need to do what everybody else has done. Jettison it all. Walk away from it. Feed the poor. Have fear in me. Live by Matthew 6.33. Let me take care of your needs. And he said to him, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's an element of sacrifice to the rich young ruler. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. So what kind of sacrifice are, are you talking about? Well, here's Peter, says to him, Lord, we have left all and followed you. And the question is, you know, what's that in for, for us? I mean, what are we going to get because of that? And then Jesus then answers that a couple verses later. And look what he says to give you an idea of what they gave up. Two verses later, and everyone, that's not just the disciples, who have left houses. Wow. Wow. Place where we live. Okay. Houses. Our brothers or sisters. That's family. Father or mother. That's close family. Wives or children or now lands. I have houses. I have all my personal relationships that are most important to me. And lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So when he's talking about sacrifice, Jesus was not mincing around. Now, am I saying we should all live this way? No. What I'm saying is that you have to be open to even the possibility that God wants to speak to us like that. Otherwise, we've got these walls up and said, yes, Lord, I will surrender to you, but not my house, not my kids, not my, uh, not my wife, not anything like that, not my land, not my investment, not my business, not my job, not my sincerely held convictions, not who I am. I would not surrender any of those things to you, but please move in my life. And historically, he hasn't. All right, is, 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 is there more? I mean, what happens if a group of people like this really live this way? Watch what happens. And continuing, it's, what about their jobs? I mean, some of these guys were farmers. I mean, they had cattle to feed. They had, you know about that. They had animals to take care of. I mean, what, who fed their animals? Well, they didn't. I mean, they're continuing daily together in one accord. They're not complaining. They're not backbiting. They're not saying, I gave more than you or you gave more than me. Finally, Satan decides to attack the church by making people not trust each other with the, the whole story of Ananias and Sapphira. He moves in lightning speed and takes them both out. Do you remember? They're continuing daily in the temple. Oh my gosh, they're bringing the gospel message to the seat of hostility, to the temple itself, telling people about Jesus. That's like you and I going to the halls of Congress and telling them what's right and what God says and what you're doing is wrong and you need to be saved from this perverse generation. Oh, we would never do that. Never do that. Matter of fact, you even just showed up in January 6th for a Trump rally. And actually went into the, they opened the doors, and you actually went into the, uh, the White House or the Congress. I mean, you'd still be in jail without a trial right now. Isn't that crazy? These people didn't care. 
and they broke their bread from house to house. Oh, these aren't independent contractors. They're not people that, well, I'll come on Sunday, but I got my own friends, my own life, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe we'll get together on, you know, for a special Bible study on Wednesday night or Tuesday night Bible study. But, you know, no, they, they lived together. They function together as one body, one unit, controlled by one spirit in abject trust in God. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart by praising God and having favor with all the people, lost and saved. Who are these people that love each other that much? And what happened? And the Lord added, oh, daily. There's a connection here. They continued daily. God added daily. We continue weekly, monthly, quarterly, whenever. And God adds weekly, monthly, quarterly, whenever. Is there a connection here? Is there something maybe we're missing? Those who are being saved. I have a couple of questions that I was going to ask you that we're not going to have time to look at. And it is in Acts chapter 4. I want to encourage you to go home and read it. You will find in Acts chapter 4 that the good times turn bad. That all of a sudden persecution takes place and it's pretty painful. Um, there's a lame man who was healed and it brought persecution to the church. If you begin in verse number 23, you'll find that uh, they're told they can't preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And, and they didn't care. They went back to the group of believers who's praying and they prayed for more boldness. And they prayed for, you know, that they, that they would continue sharing the gospel. Then God all of a sudden shook where they were at, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began preaching with more boldness. And then all of a sudden they're sharing more stuff with each other because they're not worried about the world out there. They're just worried about following God's mandate and doing what he wants as light and darkness. Forget about everything else. I'm trusting him, Matthew 6, 33. The very next chapter, I mean, people are getting saved by hankers, shadows falling over people. I mean, it's amazing what took place in the point of persecution. So, what do we do? Lord, what are you, what are you, what are you trying to show us here? One thing, I'm going to, uh, and we'll develop this idea later. And again, please understand, I have, I have no agenda. I am not living this way. I'm not selling my house and forming some big pot and we're going to have some sort of 1960 commune or something. We're not doing that. I'm just reading what the scriptures are and I'm asking the Lord some questions and trying to figure out exactly what the key was that allowed the fear of God to fall upon them and daily these people getting saved in a much more hostile environment than we can ever face here in America. What was the difference then than now. And I refuse to believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't move today like he did back then. Would you agree? What a joke that would be for Jesus to call this the abundant life in Christ, but only let the abundance take place for 40 years, you know, in the book of Acts and the rest of the time we're just limping along, hoping things get better. It's not true. But here's what I did learn. You know where the church met? In your homes. We don't want people in our homes. But why not? I have to clean my house, and it's my house, and I don't want people over there. They're going to judge me by the fact that I have a cat, and my cat tears up my, my uh, sofa, or you know, maybe my food's not as well. We, we can only go into a home that's, that's really nice, and other people have nicer homes than we have, and I, I don't want people in my homes. Okay. All right. But uh, 
You know, open up a Bible study in your home. No, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I'd rather just come to a neutral building like this one or our barn or Vic's barn or something like that. Why? Why? Well, because that's where we've always done it. We've always done it. The church has done it since the third century. And there's a reason why for that. But that's not what happened in the beginning. A couple of verses and I'll quit. Uh, by the way, um, again, we'll talk about this in time to come. But uh, what this church was doing was protecting itself from persecution. You know, if you have one head, when you take the head out, take the shepherd away, then the sheep, sheep scatter. But if you have multiple heads of an organization, it's kind of like a huge network that all of a sudden, if, um, you know, if, if this person is gone, like in, in Romania, back during the Chachowski and all that kind of stuff, and that one's gone, somebody else stands up to take its place. Because you can't stamp a church out like in communist China that grows underground, that, that just continues to feed and infest everything. And in our situation, oh, you know, all of a sudden persecution takes out. They, they take out Franklin Graham. They take out John MacArthur. They take out three or four other guys. They let, they let the guys that have, have capitulated continue having their church, exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. But if you believe persecution is coming, this is why the church meant this way. And it did for three centuries until persecution stopped. And then all of a sudden, the ruler-to-be, uh, Constantine, and the emperor after him basically said, well, we got pagan priests. What are we supposed to do with them now? Let's make them Christian priests. What about all these buildings? All right, we got pagan temples. We'll make those Christian temples. And everything changed. Everything changed. Look what happened. Acts 2, six. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They got together daily to take meals together in a home. Well, that's foreign to us. No, so I don't have the gift of hospitality. What do you think everybody did here? Continues, Acts 5.42. Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. They would go into the temple. They would share Christ. They would bring them back to the house, somebody's house, and they would simply have uh, uh, their discipleship training during that time, preaching and teaching about Christ. We have Romans 16. Uh, Greed Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. And he goes on to talk about them. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. They could have rented a barn. They could have rented some other building, but the church is meeting in houses. This is not in the book of Acts. Now we're in the book of Romans. Now we're talking about um, maybe 30 years later. Uh, Colossians, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and of course this person who has a church in his house. Philippian, uh, Philemon 1-2, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, a beloved friend and fellow laborer, and to the beloved, these two guys, our fellow soldiers, and to the church in your house. You'll not find one instance in the uh, book of Acts where the church met anywhere other than a house. Even in the epistles, you'll find later on that Paul rented a building where it was his business, and what he did at the building, you know, he would make leather goods, and then they would teach, and people would come to the building, and why he's doing leather goods during lunchtime, another time he would teach, you know, the gospel and the doctrine to them, and then all of a sudden they would close that down and go somewhere else. It's shocking what you see here that we... Um, don't do today. Please, I have no agenda. I have no plans. It's not like we're moving somewhere or doing something different. I'm just trying to figure out if 
going all the way down to the basis of just our faith and our gathering together, our assembling together. God, is there something we're doing that they didn't do that we get the results that they didn't get? Or Lord, is there something they're doing, like surrendering commitment or whatever it is more than I'm doing, that we're not doing, therefore we're limping along and they're thriving? You look at accounts of other churches in other countries and you can ask, ask the exact same questions. Anyway. I was going to close with this. One of the reasons why where I'm even undertaking some of this. I mean, it is 2023 and it's a time for us to make some resolutions. A time for us to, to see if we want to continue like we are, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's fine. I enjoy it. You enjoy it. That's why we're here. We're a voluntary association. We're friends. Okay. Um, or we can say, no, I'm really... I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for something deeper. I'm looking for something more spirit-filled, more kinetic, more... If, if it is true that you can really have an intimate relationship with God so that when He speaks, you can almost feel like His breath on your cheek, the heat of His breath on your cheek. If I don't have that, and I believe it's possible to have that, what is more important in life than that? What is more important in life than, than understanding his word and, and thriving for him? And so I'm asking you um, that if you'll just go on this journey with me. And for a while, this journey is just going to be learning. We're just going to see what the scripture says. We're going to see if maybe that just applied to them, or maybe that doesn't apply to us, or maybe, maybe that was just the apostles and not really everybody. And, and maybe we're overlooking this, or maybe we're taking it to an extreme, or maybe. Just maybe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who lives in you is the same God who lived in them. The only difference is we have far more knowledge of him, and they had far more power. You understand the difference? Power. And the power doesn't come because the Holy Spirit gave them more. The power comes because they relied on them less than we rely on us. And maybe, just maybe, God has something incredible planned for us in 2023. Amen? Let me pray.